0: Imagine ships full of food arriving to a port and being greeted by muscled-up guys in gold chains and tracksuits.
1: Da, we send gold tomorrow.
0: No, you send gold
1: today, we had a deal. You starve people, you the bad guy. You feed people, you the good guy. Either way, I keep gold. Das Vidanya suckers. <laughs>
0: Today, we'll be discussing the beginning of Putin's KGB and political careers in East Germany and his connections to the Stasi and all the way to St. Petersburg and in part two of Putin's rise to power, which will be... A future episode after this one, will be discussing his early Moscow career, his climbing the ladder to the presidency, and the bodies he had to step on to get there. Moreover, the hundreds of people he murdered to consolidate power once he became president. In that context, we will focus on the Moscow apartment bombings of 1999 and the theater hostage crisis of 2002. In both cases, the FSB killed hundreds of Russians on Putin's order in now the infamous false flag operations
1: the pile of bodies is large we thought we were going to do one episode on this but it literally won't fit (laughs) it has to be two you know when you start to read and you start to connect you know different timelines together there's just so much stuff this guy is the last true godfather type gangster in the world i'm convinced
0: For sure. Yeah. Moving on, Neil, tell us about Putin and his posting as a young KGB agent in Eastern Germany.
1: So what we hear about Putin uh, here in the press lately, and even what we hear about Putin in everyday news when there's not a war going on involving Putin, we know about the KGB, and we know he was chosen as Yeltsin's successor. But Rarely does anybody go back further than that and tell us, where did Putin come from? How did he get to where he got? Mm -hmm. How does a KGB guy get to be the one to take over for the supposedly newly free people of the Russian Federation after the fall of the Soviet Party? Those dots are rarely connected, so we dug into all of that. But Let's start with a timeline. Vladimir Putin, in his younger years, goes to law school before he has any sort of political involvement. And he specializes in international business and economics, which- Like me. <laughs> yes, like you- <laughs> But how do you specialize
0: in international business and economics in the Soviet Union? I don't even know they had such a thing. Yes, and I mean, they do. And all Eastern European former Soviet USSR satellite countries did and still do. Back then, I think it's it was more of a career path because mostly what that actually says, what people understand that is in Russia and the other countries we talked about, that is the diplomat school you go there to become a diplomat to become i was gonna say
1: that is a that's diplomatic training yes. yes so this is from 1970 to 1975 1975 he is recruited into the kgb after his completion of law school his thesis title was the most favored nation trading principle in international law So there's already a little glimpse of the future here, even in his law school thesis.
0: Well, about that, sorry to jump in, but uh, I think uh, Western countries have just decided recently that Russia will be taken out of the most favored country uh, treaty. Yeah.
1: 1975 to 1984, Putin's initial time in the KGB is first spent in Leningrad and As any new hire and a new job, you're not going to be important right away. He spends three or four years basically compiling reports on diplomatic contact with their Western counterparts, probably writing reports that nobody reads is the short answer.
0: I was going to say that uh, they're calling Leningrad St. Petersburg now, just so that we know it's the same city, basically, where he. Correct. Yes.
1: 1985 is where we start to get interesting. Putin, in 1985, is sent to East Germany to work with the Stasi, the East German intelligence police, for lack of a better word. And this is where Vladimir Putin learns the things he needs to learn to start his political rise. It's not even in Russia It's in East Germany, and it's with the Stasi.
0: So I think that tracks because what he experienced in Germany as a KGB officer did teach him some lessons. And I think the fall of the Berlin Wall, and he saw that if people get the power, it's not a pleasant thing for those who want to have the power. Yes, and not just
1: how to attain power and what it looks like when it dissipates and it all collapses, Most importantly, I think these were formative years for him because he learned how, as he studied in law school, banking and corporate governance and finance and military power and international relations between the Western countries all intertwine to sort of create the Western world. This is, as we alluded to in a couple of our previous episodes about Putin, this is what he understands that the Khrushchevs and the Gorbachevs, who were ruling a sort of insular, you know, socialist society, did not understand as well as Vladimir Putin does. He understands that the money is the way to the top.
0: Yes. And also, it's important to point out that. All diplomats are basically intelligence officers. So the diplomats working in embassies all over the world, they're called legals, like legal spies. You know they're a spy. That's their job. And then you have the ones that work undercover and embed within the population, and those are the illegals. But generally, all diplomats are thought of in the countries they're posted in as legal spies. We're just going
1: to pick up with Putin's arrival in Dresden, not... In Berlin, Uh, this is another thing that's crucial to this story, I think. He was in an out-of-the-way place on purpose. Dresden was far enough away from Berlin that there's not a CIA guy or an MI6 guy on every street corner watching what everybody's doing. They wanted to be out of the way on purpose because what it seems Putin was up to based on a fantastic book that we're going to recommend, is facilitating KGB support of the RAF, uh, the Red Army Faction in West Germany, which was a uh, sort of far-left terrorist organization. They killed a chairman of Siemens Corporation. They killed a chairman of Deutsche Bank in the 80s. They murdered journalists. Um, they were very similar in West Germany to what the weather underground was in the U.S. The PLO in uh, in Palestine and the IRA in Northern Ireland. And uh, Carlos the Jackal was also in this group. You know, Carlos of Ramirez. <laughs> of course he was. A quick rundown without too much diversion. Carlos the Jackal was the world's most prominent international terrorist in the 70s and early 80s his big thing was plane hijacks hijack a plane full of people fly it to libya fly it to iran and demand four or five million dollars in ransom money and it worked he did this over and over again his most famous action was he hijacked an entire opec meeting that's the organization of petroleum exporting countries we're talking about A room full of Saudi billionaires, Saudi princes, uh, CEOs of oil companies, oil ministers from various other Middle Eastern countries, all in one room in a hotel in Central Europe for a meeting. And he barges in with guns and takes over the entire building and flies them out of there and demands ransom. So the PLO, I assume most people are familiar with the Palestinian Liberation Organization, they were in and out of East Germany as well, and there's specific KGB documentation from that era that details approval of funds and weapons being delivered to them. And the IRA used to do joint training with the PLO quite a bit, so there's quite a bit of overlap between them. So Northern Ireland as well. Basically a who's who of leftist terrorists in the 70s and early 80s was in and out of East Germany, collaborating with the Stasi that we knew, but now we know Putin was there as well and was the KGB facilitator for all of this, because ultimately the Soviet Union was the last stop in the chain of approvals that one of these organizations had to get in terms of getting weapons and funding. So Putin was the link between Moscow and the Stasi. And they put them in Dresden to keep them out of the way so that nobody would notice what they were doing.
0: Should we use the word cabal of mobsters, maybe? I know the word cabal has some weird connotations right now, and it's used in propaganda also. But in this case, I think this is really a cabal of mobsters and shady people connected and interconnected on all continents. I don't know. I don't think that's... I, I don't think they all had
1: common purpose. The- oh, no,
0: no, just money and, I guess, uh, doing illegal, horrible things, you know, like trafficking, drugs, all these things and, yes, and arms, a- arms dealing, things like that with different purposes. But all of them together were somehow had relations or they knew each other who knew the other person. Everybody was interconnected somehow, all these villains.
1: Yes. And the the interconnection was the KGB because the KGB (laughs) had decided uh, through, again, Putin is at the center of this. The KGB had decided at some point in uh, the 70s and 80s that, look, we are too far behind technologically from America to win a direct confrontation with them. We don't have the computers in our fighter jets yet. We don't have the you know the laser guided weapons. We don't have the technological advancements as they have. You know, there was a story in some of my research uh, into all this that when the KGB guys working with the Stasi in Dresden in Putin's time there were in the office typing up their reports. Nobody wanted to use the gigantic mainframe computer that was sent over from Moscow for them to do that very thing with. They all wanted to use the American Commodore 64 computer like that was hidden in the back office that they weren't supposed to have because it was superior to, the, to yes. the giant mainframe. So they would go hide in the back room to type up their reports on the Commodore 64. It's just comically funny and Yeah, they realize that we're not going to win this way, so we have to find a new way. And the new way is Carlos, and the new way is the IRA, and the new way is the PLO, and the new way is the RAF.
0: Well, I I have a way of describing that. Hashtag Villain <laughs> Yes. <laughs>
1: and according to interviews from former RAF people, former KGB people, Dresden was the meeting place.
0: By the way, do you know I've been to Dresden? That's where I smoked pot for the first really? time. Really? How'd that go? <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful, actually, I figured if it I have is. to admit. <laughs> it was a really nice experience. Very nice city. Very nice people uh that's where i had uh chinese food for the first time as well i was really young at the time i think i was 16 it was really nice yes it was beautiful it's beautiful. never been
1: so i don't know we'll figure that out one of these days
0: yeah do you see how many things in common i have with putin we studied international relations we've both been impressed <laughs> <Yes, exactly. laughs> i i can promise you though i'm not i'm not a crazed maniac and i do not kill anybody <laughs> So not only is
1: Putin involved in uh, taking care of the KGB's friends in international terrorism while he's interested, that's not all. He's a busy man. He manages to get himself involved in the first corporations that are set up to facilitate gradual privatization uh, in East Germany and Moscow. You know, I'm sure all of our... Well, not all, all of our listeners. Those who are old as we are.
0: We are not old. Keep away a
1: little bit. Those who remember <laughs> Glasnost and Perestroika surely remember that that was Gorbachev's plan for gradual privatization in uh, in Soviet Russia. And spoiler alert, it did not go well.
0: No, and it was also the whole concept of uh, shock therapy, so to speak, to the Russian economy. Like, we have to really suffer now so that we can be better in a few years. And it didn't work, and the Russians basically never got over it,
1: so... It was a foolish plan from the beginning. I don't know how they got to that point, really. Well, we're not going to read Marx to people either. <laughs> so we'll st- just trust us, it's not going to work.
0: Yeah, and as a concept, Perestroika was okay. They had they. I mean, you can't move forward to capitalism without a reform. It's just that it didn't work as planned due to a variety of reasons, which those are. That's an entire other podcast. But back to Putin in Dresden, while he had these connections to Carlos the Jackal and all these other terrorist organizations, basically, was this still happening as he was posted in Dresden, or was he in Berlin at the time?
1: Surely he spent time in Berlin here and there, but this was all taking place in Dresden. And I think specifically because, like I said before, because it was out of the way. It was not on the wall. It was not where anybody from a Western intelligence service would be looking. They wanted this out of the way. No prying eyes would wonder, why is Carlos in Dresden? Mm Mm-hmm. The first corporation that was formed uh, between East Germany and the Soviet Empire, Putin managed to get himself onto the board of directors of. This was a real estate company whose stated purpose was to facilitate international investment from outside of Russia into Russia. Again, this is in line with The Gorbachev plan of gradual integration with the West and not so hardline insular socialist revolutionary ideology. We're gonna gradually, you know, ease up on the chains a little bit and integrate a little bit. And this company called SPAG, which is St. Petersburg is the SP. And a German name that I will put in the notes that I cannot pronounce <laughs> is
0: the AG. <laughs> Can you try? We have, Can you try? Come on, try.
1: No, I will not. Uh, we have tried German, and it was a grand failure. <laughs> so I will not try German again. Thank you. Uh, anyways, purportedly a real estate company, but... At the end of the day, what they wound up in, we'll skip the corporate uh, governance docs and we'll skip the uh, the reports, and boil it down to SPAG was not a real estate company. SPAG was a money laundering operation for the cocaine cartels. Period. Bottom line, no doubt. Why about am
0: it. I not surprised, though? It's really not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> no, with Putin, is really not. Everything, the more you look into this person, there is a never-ending trove of information about the bad things he's been doing from the get-go. Yes, of course
1: that's what they were doing, because they had to learn somewhere. You can't take guys who've been sitting around the Stasi office or the KGB office for the last 30, 40 years, writing reports about diplomats meetings all day and say, oh, you're a gangster now. you got to learn to be a gangster. Where are you going to learn to be a gangster? East well, Germany. <laughs> or Medellin. I mean,
0: you know,
1: they could teach you how to be a gangster for sure. For sure. Uh Yes. So, yes, it just, it, of course, that's what they did. And all of this, there's a through line through it all. All of it um, is in service of Putin's idea to get the KGB back to where it was. This is the thing that's different about him versus all of the oligarchs and all of the tag alongs. And all of the yes men that follow in his wake. The difference between him and them is he wanted the KGB back. He didn't care as much about the money. He didn't care as much about all this other stuff. It was turning the clock back and putting the world back like it was when he got in the KGB. Because that's what he wanted. He wanted to... Go back to the good old days. So, Putin's time in the real estate company uh, laundering money for cartels was very brief, to be honest. With a single page power of attorney letter, he gives his share away. Why? Because Putin is not in this for the money. This is a power thing for Putin, not a money thing. There are a thousand points in the timeline of Putin's life where Putin could have said, you know what? This is not bad. I came out of the fall of the Soviet party. Okay. I've got a pretty good spot here. I'm the middleman between the money here and the stuff over there. So I'm going to be comfortably wealthy. So this is not a bad life. He could have done that Many times over, never did, because Putin is not in it for the money. Putin is in this to get the KGB back in charge. That is the bottom line.
0: Basically, for him, it's ideology.
1: Exactly. That's
0: that's the reason behind his actions here. It's pure ideology. And then the money and stuff will come later, because he does like money. But I guess in the beginning, as a young KGB officer, at the beginning of his career, he was purely motivated... By ideology. Maybe.
1: And we can speculate on that a bit. It could be ideology. This is one of those things that you can't really know because, well, nothing that comes out of his mouth is true. That's the only thing you you know to start <laughs> with. But is it ideology, or is it just that he foresaw early in his career that this is how I can separate myself from everybody else? This is how I get to be the guy. When it falls apart, I'm going to be the one that has international finance expertise. I'm going to be the one that doles out the real estate. I'm going to be the one that doles out the money from the cocaine laundering operation. And if I'm the middleman, then that's how I get to separate myself from all the other contenders. And that's how I get back to being the guy in charge of the most important thing whatever that thing is whether it's funding international terrorists from dresden or whether it's managing the new russian federation it may just be that this is how he saw the the clearest path to the
0: top so you think he was i i don't know what word to use exactly because visionary seems really that it's not a concept that I would apply to Putin, but do you think he had the skill and mental acuity and, I don't know, the sixth sense to actually predict his moves so far ahead and realize that what he's doing there is so essential, so so central to what's coming next in his political career? I
1: I, I can't talk myself out of that idea. I think he did. And I don't think he's unique in that. I mean, we can look at U.S. presidents by comparison that, you know, when they were in college, they were writing things that would make them appeal as a political candidate when they were 19 or 20 years old. And you think, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a nice coincidence. No, it's not. It's because this guy imagined himself a U.S. senator when he was 19. And I think in Putin's case, uh, it may be the same story a change was coming, and I think from his statements that he's made over the years, that we can at least take it face value, uh, to some degree, that he's not tried to re-implement state control of every facet of industry and production. He's not a true Marxist believer in that respect. And he's commented on several occasions that the old world was not going to survive that, you know, state control of every enterprise just did not work. And we have to do something different. And so I think it's an economic change, but with an ever present eye on maintaining his status as KGB FSB uh, as the organization still in charge behind the scenes, just not controlling the books and, you know, day-to-day production. I think that's the ideology that we can assign to Putin based on his own statements and what he does.
0: Yeah. So most likely it was a combination of uh, pure ideological conviction because he did think the KGB was an institution without which the Russian empire, so to speak, would collapse, and he wanted the KGB to be successful and in power all the time and forever. But also, he went after his own interest and planned things in such a way so that further on in his political career, he could profit and take advantage and build on what he learned in his Germany as a young KGB exactly. officer. Exactly. Back to our
1: timeline. He gives his... Share and spag to Dr. Vladimir Smirnov, who is, to his credit, a legit hard science PhD. This guy is an engineer, later head of 10X, which is the nuclear supplier to the bulk of the civilized world. If you have a nuclear power plant and you need a restricted nuclear material, you are going to deal with 10X. in 2020 or 2022, never mind, you know, 1999. So Dr. Smirnov takes over Putin's shares in the real estate company that was really a money laundering company and makes his own fortune and uses that fortune to found and to buy his way into management of these other enterprises that used to be state enterprises and are now quote-unquote privatized. But are they really? That's another thing that is worth taking a look at in all of this. So these guys set up a corporation and put former state property in it and then give it to themselves themselves. For all intents and purposes. So is it really privatized?
0: It's not. And let me tell you about that privatization. It's what we called it. So all the Eastern European countries after the fall of the Soviet Union, we all experienced this phenomenon. And what happened is that state property was looted by people who had already been in power or very close to the people who had been in power right so it was the same circle of people and they enriched themselves and that's how the oligarchs and all the uh very 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 rich people started to pop up like you know mushrooms after rain that's another romanian expression mushrooms <laughs> after the rain <laughs> yeah but that's what that's that's what happened in reality those companies and former state-owned companies were never truly privatized they were never really i mean they were private in the sense that they now belong to certain persons but the act, the public never had the chance to be part of having this chance to participate in the capitalist economy on that level there were all kinds of fake and set up auctions you know and they would sell the share. Yes. Purely for show, the results had been known like everybody knew who it was going to win. And that's how it worked. The corruption was really rampant at the beginning after the USSR fell. And that's how all the oligarchs came to be. Khodorkovsky, uh, Berezovsky, all of them, of pretty course. much. And
1: when you look at all this stuff in the details since the, quote unquote, privatization of Russia, whether Putin deserves credit for all of it or some of it it's going to be impossible to get to the bottom of but they really did legitimize themselves for a while there's stories about 10x sponsoring like a concert for world peace put on in switzerland attended by like nobel prize winners (laughs) and gorbachev and desmond tutu and uh, various european diplomats and there's a giant banner about the whole thing is sponsored by tenex because of course it is you know you alluded to this in one of our other russia episodes that london is a russian oligarch funded city mm-hmm. period it runs on russian money and i don't think that's much different for a lot of other people it was just assumed that, well, the Soviet Party's gone, so the Russians are okay now. So, of course, we'll do business with them and have long-standing contracts with them and buy their nuclear material and consult with them on how to build a nuclear power plant in Tokyo because they're okay now. And so they did. And so these Russian enterprises were legitimized. And if anybody needed any confirmation that everything was on the up and up, they got it from George Bush, as we said in our last episode. He looked into Putin's eyes and saw a kind soul. So everything's great. Go ahead and make deals with uh, whatever business you want to make deals with in Moscow, because... The president of the United States says everything's fine. Why not?
0: Yeah, and that gives a green light to all the businessmen and all the companies and corporations across the world. A president's words do have power. And on the face of it, we all joke about what Bush said, and it doesn't seem as as it having such a great weight. But at the time, it really did. It legitimized not only Putin's presidency, but the entire uh, effort of Russian economy, all that stuff. So it legitimized Russian businesses as well and Russian business people.
1: And it's not like there were not warning signs. I think greed is the most powerful force in the world. I joke with people that... Two things get out, get people out of bed every day. Greedy, no. Food. Greedy or horny. That's the <laughs> only two motivating factors that get people out of bed, is greedy or horny.
0: That is false. I just said food. That's what but gets me out of bed. food falls in with greedy. <laughs> no, it does not. Food falls in with being alive, no. <laughs> and as we have
1: seen with uh, other recent figures... Like our boy Jeffy Jeff Epstein, greed solves horny, so greed is really the one at the top of the list. Anyway, I'm quoting from a story that was written in 2003 by the author of the book we mentioned uh, previously in this episode. Catherine Belton is the one person that I have read more for this episode than anybody else. She has done a fantastic job with this stuff over decades, not just today. And I saw that a book of hers is climbing the bestseller list again for obvious reasons. But this is from May of 2003. Caught in the center of a Germany-wide money laundering investigation is a St. Petersburg real estate company whose advisory board once included President Vladimir Putin. The Hessen, Germany-based company SPAG was among 28 firms and homes raided by police in Hessen, Hamburg, and Munich last week. These companies are suspected of laundering tens of millions of euros for one of the biggest and most powerful Russian-organized crime groups, German prosecutors said in a statement. Prosecutors believe the crime group is based in St. Petersburg and involved in, quote, numerous crimes, inc- including vehicle smuggling, human trafficking, alcohol smuggling, extortion, and confidence trickstering. That's, we're going to have to check with the Germans on the translation <laughs> for confidence trickstering. Is that a crime? That's not a crime in Texas. It may be a crime in Munich.
0: I think that's a translation mistake. I think maybe what they mean is uh, undermining somebody, compromising somebody, having them not feel secure in their position. Because if you want to blackmail somebody, their confidence is not going to go up. It's going to go down and they're going to do what you want or things like that. I I think it refers to something else like confidence trickstering doesn't sound like a... It sounds like fraud,
1: yeah. (laughs) There's always going to be a trail behind somebody. Uh, and nobody wanted to see it because, like Sandra said, you know, London is getting rich off of Russian oligarch money. Why would they want to care about money laundering? You know, this money laundering. Political parties are money laundering operations. Who cares? Let them go. And so people didn't pay attention to this stuff. And in terms of Putin, his transference of influence or at least transference of the proceeds of influence in these organizations, was always about buying himself another rung up the ladder. That's the motivating force behind Vladimir Putin, not to get the money, to get to the top of the ladder and to be the guy in control of the Russian Federation and the KGB. And look at us today. That's where he got.
0: Yeah. In fact, I think you were right about him actually planning this all along and planning each step of the way. Because I found his Stasi ID pass. It's in a BBC article. And... He was 33 when he received this Stasi ID card. So he was, I would say, old enough, smart right. enough, and wise enough to plan yes. this ahead. He wasn't 19 years old. You know, he wasn't a teenager, right? He had some experience as a KGB officer. He had been trained. He had some life experience as well. I think he was married to Ludmila, his first and ex-wife now. So yeah, he wasn't a chicken spring. No, he, he was, not a, spring he was not a chicken
1: spring. <laughs> and you have to remember, at this point, He is an international business lawyer. He's been to law school. He has not only been to law school, but has done diplomatic surveillance for the KGB for four or five years after he's out of law school. So this is a guy who was being prepared for a management role, is what I would say.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, his eyes were on the price. Exactly.
1: And... Just like that, the shock to Vladimir Putin's chosen path in life was, in 1991, it all falls apart. The Soviets decide to invade Afghanistan. It does not go well, mostly because of Stinger missiles and their propensity to pluck Russian attack helicopters out of the sky. And the massive and fearsome Red Army had to retreat from Afghanistan. And the retreat from Afghanistan eventually causes the collapse of the Soviet Party. So after just a few years, as an important figure in the KGB's international activity in Dresden, Putin finds himself out of a job, out of power, and without a structure in terms of political ideology to cling to. It's just overnight gone.
0: And while he was in East Germany, Putin actually enjoyed living there because the standard of living was higher than in the Soviet Union at the time. And one of his former KGB colleagues, his name is Vladimir Usoletsev, described that Putin enjoyed spending hours on end living through Western mail-order catalogs. And he kept up with fashions and trends at the time. So when he was younger, he was quite... Dandy, I would say, while he was posted in <laughs> Eastern <laughs> Germany, and he also enjoyed the the German beer, and he actually secured the special weekly supply. He arranged that each week he would get a supply of local brew called Raderberger, okay. And apparently he said that this is like a little paradise for him. He was married at the time with Ludmila, his first wife. And he said that Germany was kind of like a model of politics for him, obviously before the Berlin Wall fell, because we'll see that's when his whole perception about power changed. And he pretty much, I would say, looking back and what he did there, he rebuilt some Some of East Germany in Russia right now, because look, in autumn 1989, this paradise that he liked so much became a hell for the KGB people there. Because on the streets of Dresden, as the Berlin Wall was falling, Putin could see what people fighting for power can do and how motivated they are to get democracy, and that scared him. And not to mention that being a KGB officer, their office there was full of sensitive documents and things like that, and they needed to be burnt, except that they couldn't do that without a clear order from Moscow. So he tried to get in touch with Moscow, but Moscow was silent, and Gorbachev was silent, and he refused to send the tanks to help, and Putin was devastated. So, after the Berlin Wall fell, his ex-wife, Ludmila said, and I quote, "...we had the horrible feeling that the country that had almost become our home would no longer exist. My neighbor, who was my best friend, cried for a week. It was the collapse of everything, their lives, their careers." She was referring to the neighbors. And all I could think while reading this quote was like, Woman, what are you talking about? Your, life, your lives are fine. I mean, nothing really happened. You're going to go back to Moscow and continue being married to this guy who's going to climb the ladder. And I don't know, but it, it just seems you can even tell from her words that even now in her older age, I think she still feels that the Berlin Wall should have never fallen.
1: <laughs> yeah. And if you put yourself in her shoes, I don't think she's being disingenuous. Is she really wrong? I mean, I don't have any reason to doubt what she said because... This is the thing. No matter how wrong or how failed the system that you are born into is, that's all you know. Yes, if you attain some semblance of success within it, nobody is going to throw that away for ideology. At the end of the day, people like their house, people like their car, people like their kids having nice clothes and going to a nice school. There's people 20 miles from me who work at literally a missile factory, but they're paid well. They have nice houses and nice cars. I mean, I've had people tell me that I'm friends with over, you know, private messages on social media that they regret working for the missile factory and they wish they could not do it again. But are they really giving up their house in the suburbs with the nice school their kids go to and the nice car? No, they're not. So people get into their own success and you just go to work every day. I don't think it's disingenuous. I think she was probably being
0: truthful. No, she definitely was. But to me, that was shocking just because Ludmila and Vladimir were living in this fancy neighborhood, along with colleagues uh, in the Stasi and the other KGB colleagues. So it was like an insular, nice area in In Dresden, not all areas were like that. People were experiencing hunger. So there were a lot of issues that they were not experiencing, but they surely knew about them. And they lived this good life while others around them were not. So I I cannot believe that she did not realize that she was the one who was really privileged. And to say that we felt that our home would no longer exist, our life would be destroyed. I mean, what about the people that have been living like that? throughout this whole time around you, and you've been living in this bubble just because you're KGB and Stasi. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and Putin made a similar quote. I've seen uh, an excerpt taken from an interview with him he did with Oliver Stone.
0: Oh, yes, I've seen that documentary.
1: Yes, Putin had the same idea. He was asked at one point, you know, when everything started to fall apart, why didn't you just straight away turn around and go home? And his answer was, Dresden was our home. You know, my wife and kids were happy there. Even if I saw it coming a year or two out, I could not take them away from their home because they liked it there. So he couldn't do that to his family. I don't think he was being disingenuous about that either. I think they really did like it there.
0: No, they did. To me, what what was shocking is the fact that even now, his ex-wife, Ludmilla, doesn't seem to realize that her position of in the moment feeling like everything is collapsing and her life is is going to be horrible from now on was not only not true but they have been living a really good life there and they were going to go back to moscow where they are going to continue living a good life yes and this I, I, what i'm trying to say is that her perception is definitely coming from an ideological position of like she really believed the propaganda yes that... <laughs> yes i mean putin i think mostly for him it's ideological motivation and then in time power and money came along as well
1: yes power and money came later that's a good way to summarize all of this is putin is concerned with the power first the money later the opposite of tony montana tony montana said uh, first you get the power then you get the women, but Putin was the other way around. <laughs> uh, you get the, you know, you get the money later. You get the power first, and uh, so
0: or you get the men, Neil, or you get the men or
1: the man who goes fishing with you, <laughs> yes, with no shirt, uh, you know, whatever
0: riding horses,
1: yes, whatever, whichever way you go is fine.
0: Yeah. And what happened in Dresden before they left? When everybody was on the streets, people came to the KGB Stasi building and they tried to get in. And Putin made the decision to burn any sensitive documents and materials they had without orders. And he was terrified. He realized that he needs to have complete control over people, Over media, because I'm sure he noticed how the media played a role in there to back in the day Radio Free Europe and all that stuff. And when they left, they had some Stasi German friends, of course, and those friends gave them a 20-year-old washing machine and they took it back to Leningrad, now St. Petersburg.
1: (laughs) They burned so many documents in the last few days that the furnace cracked. like The furnace burst. Um uh, Because yeah. it was a 24-7... Se- Burning documents was a 24-7 operation, and they didn't get it all. A lot of the material that I went through in preparation for this episode was stuff from other Stasi offices that just corresponds to, you know, a report from the Dresden office that you can confirm it that way because there's a copy of the same letter on the other end in Berlin or somewhere.
0: Yes, and... You know, there is a point somebody made a few days ago. He said, if you want to understand better what the person thinks, you need to look at the events that shaped their younger years. The lessons you learn then, that's what will shape your personality and your actions in the future. And I think what Putin learned from Dresden was that you cannot let people have democracy and power. You have to keep the power because otherwise they're going to come and they're going to throw you out of your house. They're going to take your things and you're going to have to burn everything you have and leave.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Ironically,
1: he winds up facing the exact Same situation that Nicholas and Alexandra faced a hundred years before, roughly.
0: The Romanovs, Yes,
1: that you can keep your foot on people's necks for so long, but when there are enough of them to kick the gate down, you are in trouble. Mm -hmm. And his path back to Moscow was not direct. From his time in Dresden, after he burns what he can burn, And loads up his washing machine. And heads back east. There is a stop in Leningrad slash St. Petersburg. Because he's got to land somewhere. Uh, The party is gone. Russia is going to reform with a president and a constitution. There's going to be a parliament. And all these things. And so his former law professor, Anatoly Sobchak who was his mentor in international law and international finance, hires Putin to be on his staff when Sobchak becomes the mayor of St. Petersburg and puts him in a similar post to the one he had in Dresden that he gave away to Dr. Smirnov. Putin is assigned to be the chairman of the committee that is supposed to Attract international investors to the new free, uh, westernized private enterprise, Saint Petersburg.
0: I think this might have started as a innocent endeavor because at the time Putin was not extremely corrupt yet. He didn't have a massive personal fortune yet, even though he had been involved in Dresden with uh, the Stasi, obviously, and of course with uh, Carlos the Jackal and all other kinds of international villains. I don't think at that time he was filthy rich yet, and I think in St. Petersburg is maybe when he starts to realize that power without money is not really feasible, and the fact that he's being appointed as the chairman for this committee dealing with uh, attracting foreign investments, it's almost ironic in a way, because I think this is where he starts to feel the need for money, not only power, and to associate the idea of money meaning power as well.
1: Yes, and it's not clear from all of this that Anatoly Sobchak knew what this guy really wants is to bring the KGB back. He may not have known. In any case, Putin again lands himself as the middleman between foreign money and Russian assets that are being privatized for the purpose of trying to attract Western investors. So there's a recurring theme of Putin managing to insert himself in the finance side of international relations, which, again, you know, we can't help but give him credit for. He knows where the, uh, he knows where the soft underbelly is, and it's, it's the part where the money goes through the front door and then goes out the back, and he's in the middle.
0: Yeah, and also the people, the connections, you know, all that stuff.
1: Yes. And most importantly, as we said, not for me. No, no, no. He's not going to take the money for himself. This is to buy favor with. This is to buy my way to the top. That is the plan that Putin was working all along, I think.
0: Yes. And that's why I said earlier that money and power go hand in hand. And if initially maybe he was motivated by pure ideology as a very young KGB officer, by the time he gets to St. Petersburg with his washing machine, because that's all he got from Eastern Germany, he realizes that with money he can go much further. So he starts also to focus on buying people. And I think in a sense, a little later on, he starts building his own personal wealth as well. And about Anatoly's subject, fun fact. Later on, when Putin was prime minister and running for president, Sobchek came back home from exile, where he fled because there was a corruption investigation. In 1999, Sobchek came back to Russia to support Putin, and the issue was that Sobchek really liked to talk a lot about his times with Putin back in St. Petersburg, what they were doing there, and he was also drinking heavily at the time. So Putin, who had his eyes on the prize and the presidency, realized that Sobček is a liability at this point. So on 17th February in 2000, Putin met with Sobchek and urged him to travel to Kaliningrad to support his election campaign. He sent him there for a campaign event, basically. Sobchek went and he was accompanied by two of his bodyguards slash assistants
1: same guys we met at the port earlier, Sergey and Igor with the tracksuits
0: and the gold chains. <laughs> yes. So, just three days later, on February 20, Sobchak mysteriously died, suddenly, and the official story was that he died of a heart attack, but weirdly enough, his bodyguards had to be treated for symptoms of poisoning.
1: Isn't that interesting? <laughs> He's coming back to do his... Prized former student, his good friend, yes. a favor, and help him in his election campaign. By that point, Putin had moved on to Moscow and was working for Pavel Borodin, who was tasked with big surprise distributing state property to private ownership. <sighs> so he moved from Saint Petersburg to Moscow in exactly. The same capacity, other than he's an assistant to the guy in charge instead of the guy who's chairing the committee that is redistributing state property to all of the politically connected gangsters.
0: Exactly. Yes.
1: Who are going to be in charge.
0: He is the real life
1: Michael Corleone. That is is Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Imagine. You are running for president. And three months before the election, what am I going to do? I got to get this guy back who talks too much. My 40-year friend who took care of me and my family when the party collapsed and I was stuck in Dresden burning paper furiously trying to get out and salvage some semblance of a life for your wife and kids. And this guy brings you back to St. Petersburg and puts you in a profitable position, not just a position, mm-hmm. a profitable position. You give all that money away. I don't need that money. No, let him have it. I'm buying my way higher with that money. And when your friend, Anatoly Sobchak, comes back
0: to, support to do you, you a favor, in your to help bid, you, yes,
1: you, you send Igor and Sergey to bury him. Three months before the election, Michael Corleone. There is no other way to describe.
0: He really is. And I don't know. He could have just asked him to leave and go back to whatever. I don't know. Go back in exile or just pretty much not put him on the campaign trail at all. He was tying up loose ends. That's exactly what
1: I was just going to say. That's what gangsters do. No loose ends.
0: We know about Anatoly Sobchek because it was one of the cases that was more prevalent in the media back then. But honestly, who's to say that he didn't kill a lot of other people that we might have never heard of? Exactly. I mean, Anatoly Sochak was not just
1: a mayor. He was the primary author of the Russian Constitution. He got to be a mayor because he was already important.
0: Yes. Well, Putin took care of that and he made sure there's nobody left by the time he gets in power to give interviews and say things that he doesn't want to be out there.
1: Yes. The final just absolutely insane story of Putin's time in St. Petersburg that brings us to what's going to be in episode two of this series is, you know, when the Soviet Party falls apart, people are not going to work. Nobody knows who's in charge. It's chaos. And what that turns into is St. Petersburg has a food crisis. There's not enough for people to eat. They're going to starve to death. And a deal is struck with Western countries, that the Soviets have a stockpile of precious metals in the defense-related factories. You know, you need gold for contacts on circuit boards. You need platinum as a catalyst for certain chemical reactions. So there are stockpiles of precious metals. And a deal is struck to trade the no longer needed Soviet defense stockpile of precious metals for food so that the people in St. Petersburg don't starve. Putin is in the middle of this arrangement. Contracts are drawn and agreed to. And when push comes to shove and it's time to make the exchange, they take the gold and leave the people to starve. The real life Michael Corleone.
0: Yes, I would say that. I mean, the Italian mobsters, at least I think they do not harm women and children unless it's unavoidable. Putin does not have any kind of breaks. Nothing stops him.
1: No, and I was talking to somebody else this morning, my dog's boyfriend's owner. <laughs> we'll get into that later. My dog has a boyfriend. And uh I'm friends with the owner of that dog. And we were talking about Putin this morning. That came up in conversation that, you know, I've mentioned in previous episodes that half of my family is from New Orleans. And older people in my family grew up in the days when there was still a mafia in New Orleans, when Carlos Marcelo was still in charge. And yeah, even in those days, you know, everybody knew somebody that had some sort of dealing with Carlos Marcelo or one of his associates, and it was a matter of you could choose to deal with them or not. You know, there was no desire on their part to rule the world. It was purely a business enterprise as far as they were concerned. An illegal one, sure, but business nonetheless. And there was nobody walking around in fear of maybe Carlos will come get me in my sleep and I've never met the man before. They're not the same. These Russian mobsters are a whole nother level because, as we've said in the past hour, Vladimir Putin did what nobody else did. He put the money and the business and the mob And the power to rule the state all together into one package, and that package's name is Vladimir Putin.
0: In Putin's Rise to Power, part one, we have analyzed the start of his career as a young KGB officer posted in Germany. The connections and business he did there with international villains like Carlos the Jackal, the RAF, and the PLO. And then we looked at the role he played in the Saint Petersburg city hall, and the way his relationship with Anatoly subject, who pretty much gave him a life-saving job, Evolved over time to the point where Putin, running for president later, kills Anatoly Sobchak. Then we move forward to his early Moscow career, where we analyzed the way he operated there based on what he learned previously. And then in 1997, he becomes chief of staff for Boris Yeltsin. And in 1998, he's head of the FSB in Moscow.
1: This is just fascinating it to is. me. It
0: is. It really is.
1: The reason that it's fascinating is if you compare this to a Western equivalent, if somebody gets themselves into a powerful staff position for multiple presidential administrations, you are not going from there to the CIA. That is a step backwards. You are going to be a cabinet secretary You may run for Congress yourself, something like that. But there is no way I see anybody who is in a powerful staff position for a Western politician say, no, 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 what I want is to be head of the FSB or the CIA, or MI6?
0: No, not in the West, but let me tell you, I think he is evil, but he is definitely not stupid. I think he realized very early on that to have almost absolute power, you need a few things, and among them, one of the most important is to be in charge of the secret security services in your country, because all Eastern European countries, former Soviet satellites of the USSR, know that most of the nasty things a government can do to you, they're going to do them through the security services. You need that arm of the octopus to keep the people subdued. So you need to be a politician, but you also need to lead or to be somehow very well connected with the secret services, especially in a totalitarian oppressive regime like Putin had envisioned. He didn't like democracy. He didn't like the people to have power. He learned that in Germany. For him to get everything Being head of the FSB, the former KGB, is one of the main things he needs to accomplish.
1: In other words, if you're going to be a gangster, you're going to need muscle.
0: Yes. (laughs) And nobody else would have
1: contested this. At this point on Yeltsin's staff, he's not the primary successor that everybody suspects. He's high, but he's several steps below what people would presume the successor to be like and when he says no 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 i want the kgb surely all these political aspiring corporate guys who fancy themselves russian businessmen fine i don't i don't want anything to do with the kgb or the fsb those days are over I want the oil company. I want the gas company. I want the nuclear company. I don't want the FSB. Sure, take it. Who cares?
0: Yes, and I think you make a really good point because nobody really saw him coming. But the thing about Putin, not only he got in power as you know head of the fsb during his early moscow career and when he was chief of staff to boris yeltsin he was described as this like meek humble helpful person so he played the long game his eyes were on the prize he knew what he was doing every step was calculated to lead him to absolute power and that's why with Berezovsky, which we will discuss a little bit in part 2 of putin's rise to power he managed To go under the radar. And he managed even to get so close to be chief of staff to Yeltsin. And then Berezovsky made sure he would be president after Yeltsin. And that's why together they convinced Boris Yeltsin to resign. Uh, Putin promised him that as the new president, he will never prosecute him for corruption. That was the deal they struck and he never did. So that's how he came to power. Yes. And why would they
1: not trust him? He has fulfilled his part of the bargain. If you are one of these guys who is the Russian oil company guy or the Russian TV empire guy or the Russian gas company guy, Putin has fulfilled every bargain he's ever made. I will give you the money you want. And Putin has kept his end of the bargain right up to the point that Anatoly Sobchak gets the last injection he ever got. Putin has kept his promises to everybody else. So why would they not trust him?
0: Yes. And I think uh, they did make a mistake by trusting him. Nobody should ever trust Putin. We'll see that in uh, in part two. But about Anatoly Sobchak, I have to correct you. It wasn't an injection. It was some kind of nerve agent which was found to be on the door handle. Really? On the door handle? Yes, on the door handle. That's how his bodyguards also got uh, uh, poisoned as well. But they survived, and I think they survived because they were younger. They weren't heavy drinkers like Sobchek, who was older and not in great health. (laughs) Picture
1: these guys standing around in their tracksuits, and their gold chains, and then... It's like, wait, Sergey. how do we get out of here? We can't touch the doorknob.
0: (laughs) I don't think, you know, on the spot they realized it was the doorknob. But then that's what the investigation revealed, that there was some kind of nerve agent, some kind of poisoning agent on the uh, doorknob of the hotel or place (laughs) where they were staying. Yeah.
1: Anyways. Yes, our boy Putin is the real life Michael Corleone. That's all we got for this episode. uh, we're gonna have a part two for sure. I mean we're gonna talk about Putin forever yeah you know, i didn't I didn't believe in all this stuff we started now. I'm hooked.
0: yes, I told you you're gonna get obsessed putin is is too good. there's so much about him, and yes, we're gonna continue in part two with the Moscow apartment bombings and the theater hostage crisis also in Moscow,
1: and we've been quoting from two books that are fantastic, really, and detailing. Putin's relationship with the Stasi and these international terrorists that the KGB worked with in the 70s and 80s. The first is titled Vladimir Putin Operation Luke and Matthias Warnig, The Secret KGB-Stasi Relationship by Dr. Karen Dawisha at Miami, Ohio University, and the other one, Catherine Belton how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West. Both of these will be in the notes. Catherine also has a couple of written articles that we cited for this story. So check those out and we'll see you guys on the next episode.
0: See you guys soon.